We've read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll encourage you to have a Bible open. We're going to reference those verses throughout our time together this morning. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. My aim in this sermon is really simple. It's just to talk about the gospel, to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. Admittedly, this morning, as you look at 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, we will not give equal time to all of these verses and all of these words, but everything that we say is going to be pulled from this passage, and so you want to have your Bible open and Maybe you want to have the outline that's in the bulletin as well. Let's find our bearings in the book of 1 Peter as we start. First Peter is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And he says in verse 1 that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Essentially, Peter is writing to his own church members Peter was one of the pastors, one of the elders at the church in Jerusalem. The book of Acts describes a great persecution breaking out against the church in Jerusalem. And in that persecution, the believers, the church members were scattered and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all over the Roman Empire to provinces like the ones that Peter lists here. So Peter is not writing to people he doesn't know, but he's writing to people he does know, people that he loves people that he cares about, he knows their names, he knows their struggles, he knows their families, and his strong desire for these people is that they would have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would become more like Christ through the Spirit of God working in their lives. So that brings me to the second thing you need to know. First Peter is a Trinitarian book. It's a Trinitarian book, and you see that right here in verse 2, where Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father... In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ in sprinkling with His blood. That verse 2 is more than just filler. It's more than just sort of introductory stuff that you would throw in a letter before you get to what you really want to say. It's actually really important for framing everything else that Peter says in this letter to his people. What he's saying to them is, don't forget that the one true God exists eternally as a trinity of persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And not only is that who God is in His nature, He's Trinitarian in nature, but our salvation is the result of the triune God working together for our salvation. God the Father, He loves us and He knows us before we know Him. That's verse 2. God the Spirit makes us more like Christ. Left to ourselves, we're nothing like Christ. But the Spirit gives us life and He conforms us. He sanctifies us to the image of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ sprinkles His people with His blood. It's through the death of Jesus, the work that He finished on the cross, that our sins can be forgiven. So Father, Son, and Spirit working together for the salvation of His people. 1 Peter is also a prayerful book. And I would direct your attention to the last part of verse 2, where Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now again, that's not filler. That's not just introductory, irrelevant words. What Peter is saying is that he's praying. When he says, may, he is praying that something would happen in the lives of his people. And what he wants to happen in their lives 
is that the grace of God and the peace of God would be multiplied to them. That's our prayer for you this morning. It's just straight out of 1 Peter. Our prayer for you this morning is not that you show up on Easter, you check in at Emmanuel, you take a nice family photo, you go have a great lunch, and you call it good. Maybe you hunt some eggs or something like that. Our prayer for you is that on Resurrection Sunday, that you know the grace of God and that the peace of God is multiplied in your life. And we're going to talk this morning about how that can happen. Here's the big idea of 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. God is to be praised for the salvation of sinners through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, he died, he was raised from the dead, and according to Peter, God is to be praised for this. If you read this passage in the original language in the Greek, it's actually one long sentence that goes from about verse 3 to verse 12. English translations break it up to make it simpler for us to understand, but it's one long, continuous, gospel-fueled thought from verse 3 to verse 12, and it all starts in verse 3, where Peter says, blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Normally, when you think about blessing in the Bible, you probably think about God blessing us. That's certainly a biblical idea. God blesses his people. We ask God for his blessing when we eat meals and when we go on trips and when we send our kids off, we say, God, we pray for your blessing on this meal, on this trip, on my child. But it's also true in the Bible that the people of God are called to bless God. Now, when we bless God, it's not quite the same thing. We don't bless God the exact same way that He blesses us. And there's a verse, lots of verses, but I'll just show you one from Psalm 34, verse 1. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's Hebrew parallelism. It's the same thing being said two ways, and it helps us understand that when we bless God, it's not that we give Him something that He lacks. It's not that we provide anything that he needs, but we are praising him. We're honoring him. We're glorifying him. So yes, God blesses his people, and we're thankful for that. But it's also true, and the call in 1 Peter 1 is that we as the people of God bless God. What does that mean? We praise him for the salvation that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now I want you to think with me just for a moment before we dig into this passage. I want you to think with me about the relationship between understanding a thing and appreciating a thing. Having an understanding of a thing and being able to appreciate a certain thing. And I just want to acknowledge that there are some things in life that you can appreciate and enjoy and be thankful for. You don't have to understand them at all. For example, yesterday we had a picnic and an egg hunt, and some of you came with your children, and you had Chick-fil-A nuggets. Now, I'm not going to go into any details, but do you know what all has to go on behind the scenes to end up with a Chick-fil-A chicken nugget? I mean, a lot has to happen behind the scenes for your kids to have that chicken nugget, and your kids don't have to know any of it, do they? They don't have to have any sort of understanding about what goes into the making of a chicken nugget. just have to have that 12-pack, dip it in the Chick-fil-A sauce, and you enjoy it. You don't have to have understanding. 
Some of you this weekend on a holiday weekend, you're going to call or FaceTime or Skype or video, whatever, a family member who lives far away. You don't get to see them and you want to talk to them. Now, if you make a call like this or a, a FaceTime call like this, do you have to understand how microprocessors work and cell phone technology and Wi-Fi bandwidth and frequency and the internet? You don't have to understand any of that, do you? You just take the black box, open it up, tap the app, call grandma, there you go. You don't have to have any understanding to enjoy and appreciate the technology. There's other things in life that really you do need to understand if you want to appreciate them. And I'll just confess my ignorance and I'll tell you one of the things that I have no understanding of, it's soccer. I know nothing about soccer. Now every time the World Cup rolls around, I can't even tell you how often it rolls around, but I know that every now and then it rolls around, everybody gets really excited about the World Cup, everyone really is rooting for Team USA, although we don't seem to do much of anything, and we're pulling for the United States, and I feel like as a sports fan I should be interested and excited, and I'm patriotic, so I want to pull for the United States, and I turn these matches on, and I'll be honest, I have no idea what's happening on the pitch. I do know it's a pitch. And I have no idea what's happening. And I watch these matches and I think, okay, it seems like the goal is where you want to kick the ball, towards the goal. But I watch these matches and for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, they kick the ball sideways and backwards and sideways again and backwards again. And I watch and I think, I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. Take all the players, run to the goal, score the goal. I don't, I don't get it. The strategy of it makes no sense to me. So when I watch these matches, I want to enjoy them. I really don't. Because I have no understanding of what's happening. Maybe the same things happen to you when you've watched movies. And maybe you're watching a trilogy and there's a part one and a part two, but you're jumping in on part three. The final piece of a trilogy and you're watching and you're saying, well, I... I kind of enjoy this. It's nice, special effects, it's funny, there's laughs, there's action, whatever. But I don't really understand. You don't have understanding of the plot lines and the character and all of the backstory. And it hinders your ability to appreciate what you're watching in that third part of the trilogy. Now look, when it comes to 1 Peter 1 and the gospel story and our ability to bless God, to praise God, for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, this is less like cell phones and chicken nuggets, and it's more like me watching soccer or you watching part three of a trilogy. The call on this passage is for you to bless or praise God for what He's done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your ability to do that will only rise as far as your understanding of what God has done to save sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why as soon as Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he goes into a beautiful description of the gospel and walking us through what it is that the triune God has done to save us as the people of God as Christians. And so the first question we want to wrestle with this morning is really very simple. What does Peter tell us about the salvation of a believer? These are things you need to understand if you're going to bless God and praise God for these things. So the first truth is this. Salvation had its beginning in the mercy of God. Salvation for any believer, any Christian, had its beginning 
Not when you were born. Not when you were baptized. Not when you made a profession of faith or went to youth camp or VBS. But salvation, if it's yours, if you've received it, actually began with the mercy of God. That's what Peter says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. All of these things have happened. That's the foundational piece that he lays. Is the mercy of our God and Father over the Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy. And note that Peter says God's mercy is great. It's a great mercy. Now as you look at your notes and you fill in the word great. God's mercy is great. That's the kind of thing on an Easter Sunday you say, well, of course it's great. How could it be anything else than great? That's obvious. That's easy. Give us something deep, something we haven't heard. But I just want to acknowledge that many times in your life you will be tempted to question whether or not God's mercy is great. And you will fight sin and struggle with sin and see sin in your life and you will come to God and you will ask Him for mercy and there will be a voice in the back of your head that says you've done too much too many times with the wrong people. Surely God will not be merciful to you. Or there will be a voice in the back of your head as you come to God for mercy. This little voice in the back of your head will say to you, He might give you mercy, but He's not happy about it. He's put out with you. He's exasperated with you. He might give you mercy, but He's rolling His eyes and sighing as He does it. He wishes you had your act together by now. Peter says, clear all of that junk off the table and understand that God's mercy is great it's not begrudging it's not small it's not bitter it's not limited it is a great mercy God is not surprised when you continue to come to him needing mercy he wants you to continue to come to him for mercy so it is a great mercy and according to Peter God's great mercy results in regeneration it results in regeneration or what you might call the new birth look what he says in verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead it's a great mercy a great mercy. When God was revealing Himself to Moses in the Hebrew people, He wanted them to know that it was a great mercy that characterized Him. He said this to them in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We sing about this from time to time at Emmanuel when we sing a song called His Mercy is More. And in that song... One of the things we say is, our sins, they are many. We don't want to make light of our sin. We don't want to try to minimize the seriousness or the gravity of our sin problem. Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. It's a great mercy, and it causes God's people to be born again, to be regenerated. That's the beginning of your salvation, is the mercy of God. The new birth is only a result of God's mercy. That's true in 1 Peter 1. 
That's true in John chapter 1, where John says that those who are born again, born as God's children, it's not because of their DNA in their physical birth. It's not because of anything in their own heart or their own will or their own desires. It's because God does that. He says the same thing in John chapter 3. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom. How can I be born again? Well, the wind, the Spirit blows where it wishes. You can't control it. That's the sovereign work of Almighty God causing people to be born again. You see this in 2 Corinthians 4, that only God can open eyes that are blind to the gospel. Only God can give sight to eyes that are spiritually blind. Ephesians 2 says, left to ourselves, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. The Bible describes this in James 1 as God bringing us forth. He's the one that brings us forth. He's the one that causes us to be born again according to his word. Salvation has its beginning in the mercy of God. It's a great mercy, and it's a mercy that leads to new birth. Secondly, salvation was accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we get to the heart of the good news of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that accomplished everything that needed to be done for sinners to be made right with God. Look what he says in verse 3. We've been born again to a living hope Circle the word, if you like to make notes in your Bible, through. We've been born again to a living hope. God's the one, according to his mercy, that causes us to be born again. And this new birth is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two things to note here. The first is that in the New Testament, after Jesus had died and been buried and been raised from the dead and the apostles went out to preach the good news, they often summarized the gospel by talking about the resurrection. And you understand, when you read the apostles, they're always talking about the resurrection. That includes the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. All of his work is wrapped up in that idea of his resurrection from the dead. So everything that Christ has done is in view when we talk about his resurrection, his living and his dying and his being raised. And what Peter says is the only way that you can have living hope is through Jesus. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Through his finished work. And Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, describes what Jesus finished in his work. We just sang about that. It's finished. The work of Jesus is finished. When he had accomplished the work of salvation, he said it's finished and he gave up his spirit. What is it that he finished? Well, first of all, he finished a life of obedience. Take your Bible and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says, "Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, this is what he says about Christ, he was like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was perfect. He was whole. He was righteous. He was holy. He was pure. He had no spot. He had no blemish. He lived a life of perfect obedience. 
He also died a sacrificial death. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sins were placed on him. He bore them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. Our sin was counted towards him so that his righteousness might be counted to us. Paul says in Galatians 3 that Jesus was cursed for his people. He bore their sins. The Bible says in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53, that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. And when he crushed him, he laid our iniquities on him. He lived a life of perfect obedience and he died a substitutionary, sacrificial death, taking the punishment for our sins. He was also raised from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once, one time. Once was enough. That's why he said it's finished. He finished his work. He suffered once for sins. The righteous, he was righteous. That's his life of obedience. For the unrighteous, that's you and me, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. This finished work is the only hope that you have it as a sinner. It's that Jesus Christ has done everything that needed to be done for you to be forgiven and made right with the Father. There is no other way for you to be made right with God. Being a good person will not make you right with God. Being a religious person and going through religious rituals will not make you right with God. Coming to church on Easter Sunday, while we're glad that you're here, will not make you right with God. Coming to church 52 out of 52 Sundays in the year, while we would love to see you that much, we'll save you a seat. You come that often, everyone will know that's where you sit. It won't make you right with God. You'll have a seat. It won't won't make you right with God. The only way a sinner can be made right with God is through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus in John 14, 6 said that he was the way and the truth and the life and no one could come to the Father except through him. It's why the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 12 preached that there was no other name given among men under heaven by which people could be saved. There's no other name that can save other than the name of Jesus. It's why Paul reminded Timothy, Timothy, there is one, count him, one mediator between the holy God and sinful human beings. It's the man Christ Jesus. He's the only way that you can be made right with God. And the question is, how can you benefit from his finished work? Peter gives us the answer. Salvation can only be received through faith. Not your works. Not your church attendance, not your charitable donations, only through faith in Jesus. This is how it's always worked in God's economy, the economy of salvation. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, we read about a man named Abraham. The Bible says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. How did Abraham become a righteous man? Not by being a good man, he wasn't. 
Read the stories about Abraham. He's a sinful man. But he became a righteous man, counted righteous with God because he believed God and he believed God's promises. John 3.16, God had such great love for the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in Jesus would not die, they wouldn't perish, but they would have eternal life. It's the only way that you can be saved is faith in Jesus. Peter, throughout this passage, talks about faith, and he says several things that you ought to note. Number one, Peter says, faith looks to an inheritance in heaven. The inheritance of the believer is not in this world. It's not in this life. It's not on this earth. If you're a Christian, the inheritance that you look for is in heaven and God is keeping it for you. Your reward as a believer is not in this life, not in money in this life, not in health in this life, not in comfort in this life. Your reward is in the next life, an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Secondly, Peter says that faith, our faith, is in God's keeping power. This is important. From time to time, you may find yourself with faltering faith, weak faith, unsteady faith. And you need to remember that you are not saved by the power of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. And weak faith placed in the Lord Jesus Christ saves. Not because your faith is strong enough. The truth is it's not. It's because God is the one who keeps His people. This is what Peter says. He says, you have this inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. We noted the word through up above through the resurrection of Jesus. Now he says that this guarding by the power of God happens through faith. It's God who keeps his people. It's not us who keep ourselves. The psalmist said this, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you Will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God keeps his people. We don't keep ourselves. God keeps us. The New Testament echoes this. Jude 24, 25, to him who is able to keep you. Go back and read the beginning of Jude. There's a call at the beginning of Jude to keep yourself in God's love. Say, that seems like a tall task. I'm not sure that I'm up for it. You're not, but God is. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Faith looks to an inheritance in heaven. Faith is in God's keeping power. Number three, faith will be tested through trials. Peter acknowledges this. Verse 6, 
He says, you may be grieved by various trials. Verse 7, this is to test the genuineness of your faith. God does not tempt His people, but He certainly tests them. And He tests them to see the genuineness of their faith. Lastly, faith results in salvation. That's what Peter ends with in verse 9. He talks about the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. The outcome of your faith is not a big bank account in this life. It's not health and a pain-free existence in this life. It's not a family who has everything together and you don't have any issues as parents or as husband or as wife. That's not the outcome of our faith that we're promised. The outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Now I want you to take all that and I want you to back up with me to verse 3. The call on this passage is not to have heads filled with theological facts. That's not where this passage calls us to end up. This passage calls us to have understanding of who God is and what He's done to save us. You do need some theological truth, some doctrinal biblical truth in your head. But the call of the passage doesn't end with knowledge, it ends with praise. The call of the passage is to bless God who has gone to the greatest lengths to save a people. To praise God for all that He's done to make us His people. You and I understand how the story of Jesus ended. It didn't end with a grave and a tomb. It ended in a resurrection. And the Bible says that because you and I know how that story ended, we know how our story will end. It will end with an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you. And until you receive it, you're called to be a person of faith. And you're called to praise God for His great mercy. We're going to sing about that together this morning. We're going to sing a song as we close that says, I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. You are my Savior and my defense. No more fear in life or death.